Uh, my name is Jake. I, I, I work, as the other Jake said, at Christ City Church in Vancouver. I'm a church planting apprentice, which basically means I, I want to plant a church. I just don't know how. Uh, and so that's what I do. I figure that out for my job. That's pretty cool, I think. Uh, this morning, we're going to be in the entirety of Psalm 73. So if you have a Bible on your phone or if in physical copy or one at the back, uh, grab a Bible. We'll be in Psalm 73. And as you're going to Psalm 73, which if you're new to the Bible is like sort of in the middle and then find the big 73, uh, I'm going to ask you a question. And the question is this, what do you love? What do you love? And I'll ask this question a lot this morning, but I'll ask it for the first time now. What do you love? And perhaps immediately your, your thoughts go to uh, your cabin. I, I'm from Toronto, and so we call it a cottage uh, there, but apparently it's a cabin here. So perhaps your thoughts go to the cabin that you have and how glorious that is on a summer's day. Uh, the bike you rode in on this morning. Uh, the Toronto Raptors. I don't know. What do you love? What do you love? Now, you might be confused. Uh, this isn't Valentine's Day. Why is he asking, what do we love? And further, you might add, you've done the personality test, and you know for a fact you're not really a feely person, right? You're like a, a logical, more robotic uh, sort of person. You have facts, and you like to operate on those facts. We have a guy on our team uh, who is like, entirely logical, and I'm pretty sure he's dead inside, uh, but he just thinks in terms of like fact, 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 this, this, and it's impossible to hurt his feelings, which is really nice for me, uh, but he's very logical, and perhaps that's you this morning, you're thinking, well, what do you mean, what do you love? I'm not really a feely, emotional type person, and if you're thinking that, I want to suggest to you this morning uh, that you've probably uh, drunk more deeply from the cultural well uh, than you've realized. And I'm, I'm going to offend you probably here, and that's fine, I can leave after this. Uh, for many of us, including those in the church, and definitely outside uh, in the culture of our day, we think of ourselves as thinking creatures, right? And of course, that's a result of the Enlightenment. We have guys like John Locke and, and Rene Descartes who told us that at our core, when you boil it all down, who are we? Well, we're thinking creatures, right? Uh, to put it crudely, they would say that we're brains on a stick. We, 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 we think and therefore we are. It's important at this point to mention uh, that the Bible never talks this way about a person. Now listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 5. For out of the heart, out of the heart, come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. We read the wise father instruct his son in the Proverbs by saying, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. And, and the point is not that thinking doesn't matter. Of course, that's not the point. We, we, we think in order to fuel our desire, but, but fundamentally, at our core, we are desiring or loving creatures, right? When my son uh, throws a wrench at my head, I do not respond from the point of, well, he's a four-year-old, and he probably didn't mean to do it, and he probably loves me. I, I don't think through that. Where, where do I respond from? I love safety. I love comfort. That's threatened now. I'm going to respond from that, right? You and I are, are firstly, fundamentally loving and desiring creatures. As one author put it, you are what you love. You are what you love. This question this morning, what do you love, 
Is that the center of everything in Psalm 73? It's a question we have to answer. How you answer this question determines the trajectory, not just of your day or of your week, but of your entire life. What do you love? If you don't get it right, well, that's going to be problematic because you and I are prone to, to a misplaced love. If you're taking notes this morning, two really simple notes. Usually there's three, right? Three points. Right? This is summer, so there's two. There you go. That's my gift to you guys. Uh, two really simple points this morning. First, Asaph the psalmist will show us what it looks like to live out of a place of misplaced love. So point one, a misplaced love. Secondly, Asaph will move out of that misplaced love and, and he'll show us what it means when love is rightly found. So a misplaced love and a love found. Okay, you have Psalm 73 in your hands in some form, whether on phone or physical copy. Read with me. Psalm 73, verse 1, says this. A psalm of Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Uh, That little biographical bit at the the top there, a a psalm of Asaph that you're tempted to kind of just skip over and forget about, it's actually quite important. We read it's a a psalm of Asaph, and the question we should ask is, well, who's Asaph? Uh, Asaph is this choir director of Israel, the choir director of the people of God. Uh, You can think about it like Asaph is the Ben Gad of of the people of God, except, and this is no offense to Ben, he's much more famous than Ben, right? So Asaph is like the the Chris Tomlin or like the Michael W. Smith of like the people of God, okay? He's like a, he's a big deal, right? And in fact, what we'll find in the Psalms is that a lot of the Psalms that are credited to Asaph are actually not written by Asaph, but are written in the school of Asaph. He's so famous, uh, he's being imitated and and replicated, and and, and we have this this famous school of Asaph going on. And here in Psalm 73, what what makes it so unique is that Psalm 73 is almost written uh, autobiographically. Asaph is, is telling his story here, and he begins, did you notice, by summarizing his final conclusion. He says what? Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. And when you and I tell our stories or our our testimonies, which is the Christianese version of our stories, right? When we tell our testimonies, uh, where do we begin? Well, I grew up in a Christian home or or a non-Christian home, and, and I did this and this, and I encountered Jesus, and my life changed, right? But Asaph doesn't begin there. He begins with this true statement of who God is. Namely, namely, God's goodness and his goodness specifically toward those who are his. And he says all this before he's going to get into the messy details of his life. Now, why is this important? We could easily skip over Psalm 73 verse 1, but I think we'd miss something in doing that. See, Psalm 73 will begin, truly God is good to Israel, and it will end. But for me, it is good to be near God. Over the course of Psalm 73, we'll observe a, a life, really, the life of Asaph. And it's important on the outset to see who has changed, who has changed over Psalm 73. Who's different? We'll see Asaph's life is a roller coaster, just like ours. But who has changed over the course of Psalm 73? Asaph begins on purpose, I think, by saying God is good to Israel and those who are his. And he ends on purpose by saying the exact same thing. 
David writes in adoration in Psalm 103, verse 17, about our God. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. Oh, God doesn't change. We do. But notice this. Asaph's uh, reverential, theologically accurate worship of God in verse 1 will not prevent him from being uncomfortably honest in verse 2 to 16. And for some of that, us, rather, that will make us feel uncomfortable here for a bit. Because we like Psalm 73, verse 1. Yeah, God is good to Israel, uh, to those who are his. And we just want to think about that and think about that and think about that. And we don't want to deal with the other stuff in our life, right? We don't want to be vulnerable or, or, or honest. And as we're going to see, Asaph is going to get really, really honest. Really, really vulnerable. So before we look at I love misplaced, our first point this morning, can we just agree on something here? I don't know you. You likely don't know me. Can we be honest with each other? Psalm 73 has been called the book of Job in a nutshell. What we find over these 28 verses is this uh, worshiping God, dark place, encountering God, move to worship. Worshiping God, dark place, encountering God, move to worship. The exact same movement we find over the course of the book of Job. And I want to ask this morning, of those four places, yeah, we're worshiping God, but we're not quite sure how we'll respond when hard times come. Oh, we're in a dark place right now, a hard place right now. I'm just starting to encounter Jesus right now, and my eyes are being opened to who he is and what he's done. Or I'm in a place of full-blown praise, where are you this morning? See, the beautiful thing about Psalm 73 is that it invites all of us, wherever you're at on that spectrum, on that continuum, to come and, and behold the God who is good. What do you love? What do you love? Let's begin this morning by looking at a love misplaced. If you have your Bibles, we're going to look there again. Psalm 73, and I know it's the summer and it's vacation time, but we're going to read all the way from verse 2 to 16. Can we do that, Tri-City? Yes, we got that. some enthusiasm in the front rows here. Psalm 73, verse 2 to 16. Let's read this together. But as for me, Asaph writes, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Verse 4, for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. Verse 9, they set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues strut through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Then verse 16 but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Hesaph begins with a confession in verse 2. What does he say? But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Why? Why? 
Why, why had he almost stumbled? Why had he almost slipped? Verse 3 tells us, very simply, for I was envious. I was envious. In other words, the prosperity, the stuff of verse 3, I want that. The easygoing, ailment-free life of verse 4 and 5, I want that. Self-reliance, the ability to say, do, eat, think, whatever I want, of verse 6, 7, and 8, oh, I want that. A confidence that seemingly mocks the very universe itself. You notice that word, strut. Asaph says, I want that. We don't have to spend much time digging into the context of our text this morning to see ourselves in it, do we? Really simple question. What do you envy? What do you daydream about? I'm a father. I'm a father of of three boys. And I confess, oftentimes I envy how other people's children behave. (laughs) Yeah. Perhaps, perhaps you're married Do you envy how someone else's spouse treats them, talks to them? It's summertime. People are posting things on Instagram. Do you envy the vacations everyone else seems to be having while you're stuck here? Believe me, I'm from Toronto. Here is very, very good. (laughs) What do you envy? What do you envy? What do you love? Perhaps you know this already, and I think you do know this because Matt's your pastor and Matt's a good pastor, uh, but all of us are born with a love problem. That's our problem. We have a love problem. We love people. We love success. We love money. We love comfort. We love... You fill in the blank. And you know this. I bet you know this. But what I don't think we get is how a prolonged, misplaced love actually shapes and transforms us. I don't think we get that. Uh, a silly example, if you're familiar with the Lord of the Rings uh, series, you know Smeagol and Golem. Smeagol encounters the ring of power, and immediately you begin to see some changes in him, right? He snaps at the person he's with. But eventually, over time, his love for that ring of power physically changes his outsides, right? Like he's this hunched over sort of creature by the end of his life, right? He's he's physically changed by his love for the ring of power. That's a silly example. If you've ever worked in a community where people struggle with substance abuse, you know that their desire for whatever substance it is physically changes their, their makeup, both chemically and outwardly. You know that, Right? But what I don't think we get is that we see that silly example, we see that sort of obvious example, and we think, well, it doesn't apply to me. I, I'm set apart from all of that. Right? My misplaced love is just sort of thing I can deal with on the side. It doesn't really shape me or what I do with my time and my money and my efforts. No, no, it doesn't have to do with me. I think we'd be mistaken. See, after a season of envy, Asaph will make this conclusion. How does a prolonged misplaced love shape us? Well, it it distorts reality itself. Look what he says, verse 12 and 13. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain. 
For nothing, for no purpose, for no gain, have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. If you're reading from the translation I am, this all that begins verse 13 is better translated as surely. Like he's, he's confident about this. Confidently, confidently I'm saying that in vain have I kept my heart clean. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. I'm confident it's all been for nothing. For no reason. Why have I done it? But if we pull back, we see that three times, three times in Psalm 73, Asaph will use this word surely. He will be very confident of three different things over the course of these 28 verses. Notice, verse 1, surely I'm confident that God is good. In verse 13, I'm I'm confident that all this law-keeping and doing good has been for nothing. But then verse 18, I'm confident that God will judge the wicked. Do you see what fickle creatures we are? Maybe, maybe not you, maybe it's just me. Our affections, our desires, our, our love, oh, all over the place, all over the place. We are creatures of immense swings. See, in verse 1 and verse 18, I think Asaph is seeing clearly. But in verse 13, in the midst of the season of envy, in the midst of the season of misplaced love, he's lost the plot. He can't tell up from down. He cannot discern reality. See, his prolonged misplaced love of comfort, success, and stuff has led him to fabricate a world in which the rich are essentially enjoying this utopian existence. He's created it. That the rich are at perfect peace, perfect fulfillment, both internally and externally, that they have it all and they want for nothing. And how do you know that's not true? Well, because globally speaking, we're the rich. And let me ask you this morning, do you have perfect peace, perfect fulfillment? Do you want for nothing? Do do you go throughout your day in like a Zen state, sort of floating above it all? I don't. I bet you don't. See, it's just not true. His misplaced love has distorted reality itself. All sorts of examples of this in popular culture. Some of you uh, know the chef and author, Anthony Bourdain. His job was literally to go around the world and eat the best food, stay in the nicest places, and then tell us about it, right? I want that job. That sounds like a nice job, right? Anthony Bourdain, as some of you know, he hung himself in his hotel room a few months ago, completely unsatisfied. Tom Brady the best football player to ever live. God's gift to football, Tom Brady. He gave this famous interview uh, with 60 Minutes in which, in in the midst of his his career, he says this. And there's this, this, this vulnerability that we don't normally see on TV. He said this. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there is something greater out there for me? It's just not true, Asaph. The reality that you pronounce in verse 12 and 13 is just not true. But let's go one step further because we have to. If our misplaced love leads not only to believe a distorted reality, it also prevents us from being able to share the true nature of reality with other people who don't know Jesus. Think about this. 
If you are not convinced to your bones, like to your core, that Jesus and following Jesus is the most beautiful, worthwhile, lovely way to flourish as a human being, why would you tell anyone about him? Why would you? Why? What do you love? We have this guy on our staff named Brant, and, and Brant just moved uh, from mission. I don't hold that against him, but he moved from mission. And, and he now works and lives in the Kitsilano South Granville neighborhood. And if you know Vancouver, you know that that South Granville sort of corridor there is nice. Like really, really nice. It's nice people, nice homes, nice cars. It's, it, it's nice. And because Brant loves Jesus, he found himself in a park one day talking with people about Jesus, building relationships with his wife, Heather, and he was confronted with his heart. And he saw these guys and these gals roll up in, in their nice cars with their nannies with them. And, and he thought to himself, do I really believe? Do I really believe I have something better to offer them in Jesus and his gospel and his kingdom than what they already have? Do I really believe that? Try city do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that what you have in Jesus that Jesus died and in dying paid your debt of sin. And not only that, he gave you his righteousness. So now you're clothed with his righteousness. And not only that, but also you're his, you're his children. You're God's children now. He doesn't call you strangers or aliens or enemies any longer. But now you're our children in Christ. And you've been seated in the heavenly places with him. Do you believe that in Jesus we have the better thing? I have to be very honest with you. It's easy on a Sunday morning to, to say that and to, yeah, let's do this. But tomorrow, do you believe that? Tuesday, do you believe that? I'm going to go out on a limb here, and this is purely speculative, and you can ignore me at this point. If, if you want to tune out, this is the time right here. <laughs> Verses 2 to 16, I'm going to guess. I'm going to guess that in that time, Asaph wasn't leading many people to Jesus. I'm just going to guess that. Asaph, tell us about your God. Tell us about who he is. Tell us about what he's done for your people. Oh, no, no, you guys have it all. Look at them. No worries. No troubles. Misplaced love distorts our own reality, but further and perhaps crucially prevents us from sharing the true nature of reality with other people, which is why verse 16 sounds the way it does. Look with me. But when I thought how to understand this, Asaph says, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Asaph is seeking to reconcile two sort of competing ideas. Not sort of, definitely competing ideas. One, in verse 1, God is good and he is good to those who are his. And now in verse 12 and 13, but the wicked prosper and they live lives of bliss and happiness and they want for nothing. And of course, Maybe you're here this morning. Of course, trying to reconcile those ideas will cause us to experience some sort of turmoil, some sort of uh, inability to process, some sort of confusion that he experiences in verse 16. What does he say? It's a wearisome task. It can't be done. How do these two ideas live together? He's experiencing a disconnect between what he's seeing and what he's been told. But notice... And this is so applicable for us. Asaph's disconnect and turmoil comes to him 
on the basis of his perceived experience. A perceived experience that is shaped by expectations created by misplaced love. Let me explain. If it is God's job, and thus it is your expectation, if it is God's job to make you healthy and wealthy because those are the things you love, then without a doubt you will crumble and suffer and experience that sort of wearisome that Asaph is talking about in verse 16. Like there's no way around that. If that is your expectation, as soon as you leave this door, you you know this to be true, you will find yourself in verse 16. How do I reconcile these things? I just got laid off. I just lost my family. No one likes me at my school or my place of work. But what? What if God was asking us to love something or someone else? What if our hearts were realigned? What if we heard a different story? Look at verse 16, and let's add verse 17 to that. Asaph writes, But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. And then verse 17, and this is the turning point of the text. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, and then he says, Then I discerned their end. When Asaph went into the sanctuary of God, or as other translations put it, I perceived, I understood. Asaph has an encounter with the living God and his heart was changed. And if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, really simply, this is the gospel. This is the good news. This is what is at the core of our belief as Christians. That we can encounter a living God who can change our hearts. See, describing his season of misplaced love, look at how Asaph describes himself. This is Asaph, the choir director of Israel, the famous one. Asaph says this, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. How many of us talk about our sin in those sorts of terms? You have a bit of a sin problem have these things I do once in a while, it sort of like, it just springs up and I whack it down like whack-a-mole, right? The author of Rosaria Butterfield, and this isn't in my notes, but I think it's important. She, she talks about how growing up, she grew up in a Catholic school and, and, and the nuns there told her that, that her sin was like a stain on her blouse. Now, Rosaria at the time, unbeknownst to the nuns, was that she was going through a tumultuous family life with all sorts of terrible, terrible, terrible things happening. And she said, how is sin like a stain on my blouse? The sin I experience is is, is pervasive. It's like being covered in an oil slick. It it invades every part of me. Is, Is Jesus only able to clean a stain off my blouse? See, what happens is when we make a a little deal about sin, when when sin is a small thing, we can just kind of brush to the side, we make the work of Jesus also a small thing. And that's just not true. It's just not true. I don't know where I am in my notes. Asaph, Asaph, he began with recognizing that his sin hurt him, right? My feet almost slipped. Okay, you're getting it, Asaph. Then he recognized how voicing his envious thoughts would have hurt other people. What did he say? If I had said, I will speak thus... I would have betrayed the generation of your children, right? He, he's a public figure. He can't go blabbing these things out to everybody. But then notice the turning point in verse 22. Now he sees a sin, not an offense primarily against himself or against the community of God's people, but now he sees his sin primarily as an offense against who? 
God. What does he say? I was like a beast toward you. We have to come to that place this morning, Tri-City. Seeing our sin primarily, not as an offense towards ourselves and the community, though it is, but primarily as an offense against God. It is not until Asaph went into the sanctuary that he saw clearly. And if you're here this morning, again, and you're not a follower of Jesus, uh, let me just say, first off, I know how that feels. I was also once not a follower of Jesus. And there was this arrogant claim that I encountered before I was a follower of Jesus, and it's the arrogant claim at the center of Christianity, and it goes like this. Unless, unless you encounter the living God revealed to us in the person of Jesus, you will never understand, perceive, or discern. Now, I know exactly how that sounds. And yet it's what we find here in the scriptures. So perhaps you're a believer this morning or you're an unbeliever this morning and you want to encounter this living God. How do we do that? Well, Asaph went to the sanctuary. What does that mean? Well, in the sanctuary, the word of God would be read. So, so Asaph goes and he hears, rather he reads his Bible, right? He opens his Bible and encounters God in his words. One old dead theologian, he said this, How can we attain to wisdom but by submissively receiving what God teaches us, both by his word and by his Holy Spirit? Friends, you want to encounter Jesus? Open your Bibles. I know it's summer vacation. Don't take vacation from your Bible, right? Kids here this morning who are not out there. Kids this morning. You guys are doing that memory verse thing? That's amazing. That's gold. Grab onto those things. Grab onto those verses. Open your Bibles. Encounter Jesus. Asaph went into the sanctuary. What does that mean? Well, he went to the place where the community of God was gathered to encourage one another with God's promises. Let me ask you, Tri-City, do you have somebody in your life who says both hard and true and loving things to you? And maybe love goes first there. In a loving way, do you have somebody who says hard and true things to you in your life? I imagine Asaph didn't go to the sanctuary by himself. Rather, I imagine the people of God were there. That's why we gather this morning. That's why you guys gather in community groups or whatever you call them, right? Asaph went to the sanctuary. And the sanctuary, if we could summarize it, is this place of humble confession and and sacrifice. As David said in Psalm 51, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Let me invite you this morning to repent. Are you in a season of misplaced love where the things of this world have grabbed hold of your imaginations, have grabbed hold of your conversations, have grabbed hold of of your daydreaming? Let me invite you this morning to repent. To believe that what you have in Jesus is indeed the better thing. That's what verse 16 to 17 is a picture of. It's a picture of repentance. It's a picture of a rejection of self-reliance. It's a picture of rejection of our own perceived reality being the authority. It's a picture of rejecting consuming envy and bitterness. It's a picture of turning from all these things and turning to God, the God who is good and indeed good to those who are his. Asaph 
Asaph is a desiring, is a loving creature like you and I. And Asaph, who experienced a love misplaced, good news, Tri-City, now, now, experiences love found. Love found. And what does having our love rightly ordered with God at the center of it do for us? Really simply, I want to say three things. First, first, we move out of our distorted reality and perceive how it will end for the wicked. Verses 18 to 20, read with me. Truly you set them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. And then verse 27. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. And you put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. So transfixed on that speeding Ferrari that we don't see that the cliff it's heading towards, right? Again, Tri-City, this, this isn't new to you. This isn't new stuff. But by way of reminder this morning, you can't take it with you. You can't take it with you. Second thing, rightly ordered love shows us the severity and reality of our sin. Verse 21 to 22 when my soul was embittered, Asaph says, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Again, we've already talked about this, but how do you see your sin? Is it a stain on the blouse that needs to be kind of you know, worked out by mom? Or, or is it this pervasive oil slick covering every part of you, every thought, every idea, every action, See, the closer we get to Jesus, the more we recognize our unworthiness to be near him. And yet, as we'll find, he calls us. Third thing, and I want to linger here because this is the point. When our love and desire is primarily found in God, revealed to us in the person of Jesus, we begin to recognize his hand, his sovereign hand at work, even in the most trying of times. Verse 23 to 24. Nevertheless, Asaph writes, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. See, earlier we said that a misplaced love distorts reality, right? It distorts reality, what we know to be true. We believe the rich and the powerful lead lives of tranquility and flourishing that really, when we push on it, we discover these to be mirages, right? It's just, it's just not true. It's just not our experience. But here's the point. If our greatest comfort in the midst of seeing wicked people flourish is, oh well, deep down they're miserable like us, right? We've missed it, right? Is that our comfort? That the rich and the wealthy and the famous and the successful are just as miserable as, as the rest of us? Is that, is that our hope? Is that the gospel? No. No, no, a thousand times no. It's that we, in finding our love satisfied in God, in finding our love in Jesus, have something that they do not. And we believe it. Right? Augustine said what? The great St. Augustine, our hearts are restless until we find our rest in you. He knew that to be true. If we look back at Psalm 73, 23, and this is going to encourage you, 
Psalm 73, 23 to 24, you'll notice that we as Christians are, are covered in each of the tenses. Notice, past tense. God has grasped. Nevertheless, Asaph says, I am continually with you. Why? 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 How, how did Asaph end up in the sanctuary? Did he sort of like climb his ladder to the sanctuary? Like you know, say a secret code and get into the sanctuary? No. Why? You hold my right hand. God, who was faithful in the midst of verses 2 to 16, still proves himself to be faithful in Asaph's life. Past tense, we are covered. He is holding on to us. What's that hymn? Prone to stay near you, O God, right? Prone to obey you, O God? No. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Past tense, God is grasped. Present tense, God does guide. Asaph writes, you guide me with your counsel. Here's the thing. If we believe that God in Jesus has rescued us from our sins and that we are now in Christ, we also then must believe by default that he will continue to guide us and, and lead us and, and sanctify us and make us more like his son. Do you believe that this morning, Tri-City? Not only the God who has grasped you once, but he's not done with you. It's not just hold on until I come back. No, he's not done with you yet. God has grasped. God does guide. And future tense, God will glorify. And afterward, Asaph writes, you will receive me to glory. And there's a contrast here. In contrast to the future of the wicked, who Asaph says their end is eternal torment, those who are God's, indeed those who are in his family, will enjoy him forever. In the end, they will be glorified. Do you see the plan of God? This should excite our hearts. This should encourage us. This should excite our, our affections. Which is why, hundreds of years later, when the Apostle Paul, who found his love rightly in Jesus, describes the gospel in a strikingly similar way to Asaph. Romans 8.29, Paul's letter to the church in Rome, it says this, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Do you see the similarities there, right? Past tense. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Maybe you have some questions about that? Matt and Ben would love to answer those for you, right? What does that mean, predestined? They'll answer that for you. That's not the guest speaker's job, right? He's got your hand. He's holding on to you. This is good news for us. Past tense. Present tense. He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Again, if you are in Jesus, know that you're going to look more and more and more like Jesus if you love Jesus, right? This is good news. This is good news. Past tense, he's got you. Present tense, he's conforming to the image of his son. Future tense, in order, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. See, Jesus doesn't stay dead. Jesus is alive. He's alive and he has a new resurrection body. And guess what? Those who are his also get a new resurrection body in the new heavens and the new earth. Christian, does this excite you? Does this encourage you? Are you thinking about your, your, your lunch after this? Right? This should it stir up our affections and our emotions. We should be, we should be 
just, just amazed by this. It was so interesting. I go out for a lot of coffees and lunches, and usually for the first 15 to 20 minutes, I'll let the other person talk. Just talk. And I can tell in those first 15 to 20 minutes what you love. Because you just talk either about your cabin or your grandkids or you fill in the blank. All good things. But what do you love? What do you love? Are you excited about the plan of God, not only in your life, but in the history of the world? It should excite you. By verse uh, 25, Asaph has moved from summary statement through struggle and doubt, through encountering God, and he's now in full-blown praise. He writes in verse 25, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Verse 26, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And perhaps the, the, the second line of verse 25 is better translated. And having you, and having you, I desire nothing else on earth. I don't want to presume to speak for, for Matt with this, but with my people in our community, I want us to be a people who say this. And having you, Jesus, I desire nothing else on this earth earth. Asaph died. His flesh and his heart literally failed. But Asaph knew the promises of God. He knows that God has held him. He knows that God has guided him and he knows that God will glorify him. And so we can say in verse 28 of our psalm this morning, but for me, for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Man, I would venture to guess that this cycle we saw this morning of, of knowing God and knowing his truth, but unsure of how we're going to respond in trials, to struggle and doubt, to encountering God, to, to worshiping God. I would venture to guess that this cycle that we find in the book of Job, I would venture to guess that Asaph went through the cycle more than once in his lifetime. That this wasn't a one-time thing for him, Right? That he found himself in seasons of, of doubt and struggle and of, and of misplaced love and of reorientating his love back towards God. See, this side of eternity, it's good news. God has grasped us. He will guide us and he will glorify us because we are fickle creatures, like a roller coaster, confidently pronouncing things. But I think... I think Asaph got better at that last part, the part where he makes God his refuge, his fortress in times of trouble. Let me close this morning by asking uh, the question, what do you love, perhaps in a different way? Where do you go for refuge? Where do you go for safety? For some of you, uh, the uncomfortable truth, remember we're being honest this morning, the uncomfortable truth is that your refuge is found in, in substance abuse. Had a bad day? Looks like the wicked are getting ahead. I'll just have a beer. Maybe two. Maybe three. For some of you, uh, the uncomfortable truth is that your refuge is found in simply putting your head down and working harder. H had a bad day? The wicked are getting ahead. I'll show them. 
I'll just work harder, do better, be more talented, be more industrious. That'll show them. Your refuge is in yourself. For some of you, uh, the uncomfortable truth is that your refuge is found in, in the praise of other people. Had a bad day? Oh, that's easily remedied. Just post something on Instagram and get likes, right? Instant validation. Instant affirmation. Because we are prone to wander, we're all naturally looking for refuge, not in Jesus, but outside of Jesus. The harsh reality, as Asaph confesses in Psalm 73, is that if our refuge is not found in God, revealed to us in the person of Jesus, we must then ask, whom have I in heaven but you? And if you're not a follower of Jesus this morning, this is how I want to end, by asking you, to whom else should you go? To who else would you go? The Apostle Peter, we, we know him as, as St. Peter in some circles. Uh, he was famously this, this big pioneer for the church. But, but, but Peter had a lot of screw-ups, like y- you and I. And at one point, people are, are leaving Jesus. He, Jesus had some hard things. and People are, are leaving Jesus. And, and Jesus turns to Peter and asks Peter, Peter, are you going as well? Are you, are you also leaving me? And in a rare moment of correction and clarity and, and rightness, Peter responds like this, Lord, to whom else shall we go? Now, why does he say that? Because he then says this, which is true of Jesus. You and you alone have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. It is God alone who has grasped us. It is God alone who will guide us. It is God alone who will glorify us. Who do you love? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this time this morning in which you have has spoken to us through your word by your Holy Spirit. And I ask, Lord, for my brothers and sisters in this room that you would uh, be speaking to them even now in this time of reflection. That we would be people who leave this place not just looking uh, towards ourselves and our own community, but beyond these walls to those who do not yet know you. Would you help us, Lord? Would you empower us by your Spirit to love you? And in loving you, we know that's the best witness to a watching world. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.